This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Hey folks, this is Jamar Tisby and you are listening to Pass the Mic. I have a message from my regular co-host, Tyler Burns. He says, greetings and God bless to everybody, but he is in the midst of a move right now. He's moving on up from apartment to house and uh, his family has grown. So it's a good move for him. But obviously, if you've ever moved, you know how time consuming and energy consuming and all consuming that can be. So we're giving him a little bit of a break these past couple of weeks so that he can conduct that transition smoothly, take care of his wife and daughter. And Tyler, we miss you, brother. But we have the always wise, the bearded um, guru, Aaron James with us. <laughs> What's up, brother? What's going on, man? Yeah, we still have the Pensacola connection going on here, so I feel good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No doubt. Well, the big news as we record this, I was actually a little late getting on because I was on Twitter. Some dude, I don't know if you've heard of him, LeBron James made a big announcement today. Did you hear about that at all? Yo, I saw a picture somebody posted. I thought it was a joke. I was like, stop playing with me, man. Stop playing with me. (laughs) What did you think? Did you want him to go to the Lakers? Yeah, I mean, the odds, you know, were that he would be there. I think he was even teasing it last summer, right? And so even though I felt like if he were to leave Cleveland, L.A. would be the most likely destination. But now that it's official, it's just like, dang, because it's a major shift in the league, man. Yeah, Yet another huge. one. I'm not a, I'm not a huge basketball NBA guy. I'm not. But LeBron is is just big news, right? He transcends the sport. So I've been paying attention as well and now the Western Conference is stacked. I don't know what it's going to look like come playoff season. Uh if it's just going to be sweep after sweep or what, but it's going to be exciting to see how the Lakers build out their team and build it around LeBron James if they're smart. Um, So, yeah, pretty exciting news for the summer. I just got to throw this in there real quick, though. Paul George, you stayed in OKC. Big mistake, bro. I'm going to leave with that. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. You're going to alienate our OKC market. (laughs) (laughs) That's just one man's opinion, folks. No. um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So just interesting non-political news there. Every once in a while, we need to throw something in there. But we do have a pretty heavy topic today. And it's interesting because it's one that comes up frequently. And we've talked about it on, you know, here and there on different episodes. But I don't know if we've devoted a full episode to it. And the topic is this. Is Christianity the white man's religion. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) You will be surprised, though, how many times we get this question through DMs or social media, people looking for resources on this question of whether Christianity is the white man's religion. So we wanted to break that down a little bit for y'all. 
obviously I'll come with some of the historical perspective. Uh, Pastor Aaron's going to come with some of his experiences as a minister, and hopefully we'll provide you all with some resources that will help you answer and address this question of whether Christianity is the white man's religion. So let's dive into it. Aaron, like, where does that question even come from? Why are people asking this? I think that question comes from two main sources in my estimation. Um, I'll start with the first. I think the first place that question comes from is the uh, current and what has been the inherent ethnocentric bent of American Christianity um, that has been predominantly centered on whiteness and Eurocentric cultural norms, right? And I think that a second place that it has come from uh, is actually the result of that as kind of a pushback that due to the Eurocentric, um, white-centered nature and bent of Christianity within America, the pushback, particularly in the Black community, in terms of groups, whether they be like the Black Hebrew Israelites or the Nation of Islam, has been to push back against those twisted uh, expressions of the faith with a with an expression or an objection that gave dignity and power back to black people. Dang, <laughs> that was uh, very deep <laughs> and eloquent. I would have just said because <laughs> they racist. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think I, I agree with you. It, it comes a lot of times from people of color who are looking at Christianity, especially in the American expression of it, and seeing a lot of racism and white supremacy embedded into the religion, everything from denominations to congregations to individual beliefs and ideas. And it comes from a lived experience as well, that there are people even this day in the 21st century who are experiencing forms of discrimination, microaggressions, um, misunderstanding that is rooted in racist ideas and philosophies, which, by the way, doesn't mean that everyone is intentionally trying to be racist and bigoted towards someone else. It just means that these ideas are baked into what has become American Christianity. Um, and I would argue, even though that there are segments of American Christianity, that this sort of white supremacist idea affects every branch of the American church, not just conservative or evangelical or predominantly white. There's there's elements of this all over the place um, that we have to be aware of. I think it's something that we can overcome and do something about, but only if we're conscious and intentional about it. But would you, I mean, am, am I off base here that it's, that it's everywhere? I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, it's one of those things like the reason why I use the term inherent is because it has been such a part of the fabric and the DNA of Christian expression in America that now it's just kind of like on autopilot, bro. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. white centeredness is the default setting of Christianity in America. And, and so it's like now that the, the way that the stage has been set 
over centuries, the way that structures have been built, the way that institutions have been organized, it's the default setting. And so, like you said, you don't even have to be aware, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But just to be in the space, just to uh, cooperate or associate, um, you're going to run into it uh, in, in just about every circle. Yeah, and let's 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 get specific, right? Like, what does it mean uh, that that racism is is everywhere in the American church or affects every part of the American church? I think of actually, <laughs> shameless plug. I'm writing a whole book about it. Um, it's called plug it, bro. The color of compromise: the truth about the American church's complicity and racism comes out January 2019. So I actually go through. The history of the American church from the colonial era on up to the present and and sort of the era of Black Lives Matter that we're in right now. And one of the I mean, there's there are just dozens and dozens, hundreds of examples that you could give. But one of the earliest ones that stands out to me is in 1667, the Virginia Assembly, which was a group of white Episcopalian men passed a law that said baptism does not alter the condition of a slave. So wow. It, it basically said if you were African, if you were a Native American, or if you were mixed race, you could be baptized and remain a slave, which was significant because in English law, British law, you couldn't own you couldn't have a, a Christian as a slave by tradition. So so this was a significant departure and it was designed to address the hesitancy of slave owners to even have missionaries go and evangelize the slaves. Because they knew that embedded in the true gospel was this message of liberation. And they didn't want their slaves to hear that and then get all these ideas about equality and freedom and all that. They wanted slaves for life. So this was stru- this stuck out to me this because this goes to before the founding of the United States, right? This, yeah. this this is before the political entity known as the US even comes into being and you already have the American church sort of um co-signing and even helping to construct racism. Man, you know, as you were talking, I I, I went my mind went I went back to how there were actual arguments, theological arguments, as to whether or not Black people or African slaves had souls, right? That's right. That's right. I, I mean, I mean th- there was there there were there were theological, scientific, social, uh, you know, economic. These these were. I mean, all of these structures were built. Uh, and designed to oppress black people to to perpetuate race-based chattel slavery. And that had to be done in a myriad of ways. It had to be done in a way that didn't just affect their condition in terms of uh, a forced uh, a forced labor and, and 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 the atrocity of slavery itself. It had to be done in order to create an actual an actual station in life on American soil. Mm-hmm. And What's amazing about that is that um, I don't see very many 
substantial objections that emanated from the community of faith. <laughs> my goodness, my, my, my. Yes, you're right. And immediately, I think people are going to, you know, jump to exceptions. Oh, well, you know, what about William Wilberforce, who was British? What about, you know, all the abolitionists in the United States who used Christianity as their basis of opposing slavery? I say, yes, those people existed and absolutely embedded in Christianity are the tools, are the motivations and the principles uh, to to fight against race-based chattel slavery, as we saw in the United States. But those were the exceptions, and they were persecuted. Uh, people, yes. pastors lost their pulpits, people lost jobs and homes. Uh, they were They were even killed, if we think of Martin Luther King Jr. and many, many others who are not nearly as famous for their stances against slavery, racism, and segregation. And so, you know, this is one of the points that I try to make. It's like, yes, there there were exceptions, and and thank God for them because they helped to usher in certain freedoms for people of color in the U.S. But we jump too quickly to those narratives. We don't sit and steep in the ugliness that is our. And I use that word on purpose because we're you connected as a church body, our history as a church with racism. If you can't sit and look straight in the face of the ugliness that hatred has caused emanating from the church toward people of color, then we'll never actually make meaningful progress to eliminate that hatred. So it's it's uncomfortable, but we got to do it. We got to dwell with it. And as you were talking, it reminded me of a, of a great book by Rebecca Getz, G-O-E-T-Z, called The Baptism of Early Virginia. And you were talking about how, how people had to create a system in which they even questioned whether people of color, Black people in particular, had souls and could be saved. So in that book, um, Dr. Getz talks about this idea of hereditary heathenism, that hmm. religion and salvation could be passed on hereditarily, which meant that any minority, any person of color was automatically a heathen. And it also meant that any, any Euro-American was automatically a Christian. So you can see early, early, early in the United States how Christianity gets coded as white. And then the flip side is not only is heathenism coded as black or of color, in order to become Christian— you actually have to ideologically and culturally become white as well. Yeah. You know, yeah. we have to wrestle with the historical roots of this dynamic. I don't think people realize the, the damage done to the souls of Black people and the way that the character of God and the message of the gospel were grossly misrepresented and that the person who claims to own you, the person who says, you're my property, and I can do with you as I please, buy you, sell you, chastise you, um, feed you what I want, when I want, however I want, claims to be a good Christian man. Ugh. I mean, that that is, I mean, it, it's, 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 it's catastrophic, right? Mm. And and 
we've seen even glimpses of this as of late when, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was Jeff Sessions that referenced Romans 13. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Right? And so the way that the Word of God, the way that sacred scripture was used or misused and abused, we should say, in order to to keep this going, people would say, well, why does there still linger in the Black community and in communities of color uh, a deep or just kind of this, 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 this mistrust of the Christian faith? That's right. That's right. And this is not an objection that simply comes from people uh, rejecting, uh, wanting just to reject God outright. Some of that or a major factor in that has been the misrepresentation of the faith through mm. some of the things that we've just discussed. And so you can't just write people off and say, well, you know, uh, they're just rejecting the truth. No, we actually have to go to see and to deal with, like you said, deal with those very difficult areas and occurrences to find out and pinpoint the areas where the faith has been and still is being misrepresented. And we have to deal with them. Bro, I live in an area where the 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 whole curse of ham thing is still alive and well. Man. There man. are people who believe that. To, that un, if you un, are a person unpack that for, for folks who may not be familiar with how the curse of ham has been used to reinforce racism. Yeah. So Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And so after the flood, when everything is being reestablished. Noah has a vineyard, he has too much to drink, and and he's he's kind of laid out, he's exposed, and um Ham, the son, looks at him and 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 behaves disrespectful towards his father, and and there was basically a a curse pronounced on his descendants, the Canaanites. Um and 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 so that curse, so to speak, has had been or or was twisted to apply to people of color that like so so ham's descendants are people of color you know the african people the brown people and so these are these are cursed people like it goes back to that inherent heathenism thing that you were just talking about right and so these are these are misrepresentation this is the scripture being twisted these are harmful teachings that still exist today man that we're That's still wild. refuting these things today well i'm glad you, know? you i'm glad you brought up the the issue of slavery because i think that encapsulates it most clearly right um how can black people in particular believe in christianity when the people who profess to own them also professed christ so uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove just wrote a book uh, this past year, and he calls it slaveholder religion, which, which it is, right? It's, it's this conception of Christianity or maybe idolatry masquerading as Christianity that says it's okay yeah. to own people. And then, like you were saying, uses the Bible to back it up. And so what's so interesting, there's a passage in Acts 17 where uh, it says that God determined the places uh, and the habitation of each person. And, and, and the second part of that verse goes on to say, so that they may reach out and find God. Well, the first part about God determining the habitation, segregation is used to enforce segregation. They're like, look, yes. it's right here in scripture. God said, 
I appointed certain places. And so he doesn't want different people to mix, particularly black and white people to mix. They would go to the Old Testament and they would even talk about not mixing what like uh, different different fabrics in the Old mm-hmm. Testament and different seeds. And they would extrapolate from that that you shouldn't mix different races. And, and so you see this sort of um, twisting and the somersaulting people do with Scripture to justify their own bigotry. And vast swaths of Christians in America believed it, accepted it, or at best didn't protest against it, right? So the Bible itself has been used to justify this. As a pastor, Aaron, how would you how would you use point to the Bible specifically to refute the idea that Christianity is the white man's religion? Well, going back to scripture, one of the things that I find that is just amazingly profound is how blatantly the Bible deconstructs that lie. Everywhere, right? all over the place. So, for instance, um, when we go back to the dawn of creation and the creation of humanity in the image of God, bro, this takes place in the Near East, right? <laughs> like, you mean like it's the not farthest, in Europe? The, the farthest away it takes place is the Near East, all right? Incredibly close to the African continent, right? Um, what we would call today Semitic people, you know? Um, and then when God is beginning to unfold his covenant of grace and his plan of redemption concerning the nations, he goes to a pagan idolatrous man by the name of Abram. And he tells him, I am going to make you the father of many nations, plural Mm -hmm. nations. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Mm -hmm. And when we begin to go through the Old Testament in particular, you find these points where God gives foreshadowings of the fact that his great plan of salvation is for all peoples and not just one ethnicity. So there is no one ethnicity that has a corner on the market in terms of God's salvific plan and his purposes. And so I love the way uh, when, for instance, Israel is beginning their conquest and they come to Jericho, and lo and behold, there is a woman by the name of Rahab who is not Jewish in no way, shape, or form. Hmm. And she not only gets brought into the covenant community, she's a literal descendant of Christ and his humanity. Hmm. And there's not just Rahab, there is Ruth, the Moabites. The the Moabites were enemies of the nation of Israel, but God brought Ruth into the family line as well. Um, We see in the New Testament where there was this constant cultural tension because the faith was seen to be a Jewish faith. And that was never God's design from the beginning. For instance, when John the Baptist spoke to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he said, don't say to yourselves that we have Abraham to claim as our father. He said, God could raise up children of Abraham from these stones. Mm. In other words, he was saying, you don't lay claim to your ethnicity as a means to salvation. Your ethnicity (laughs) is not your ticket into being uh, brought into the covenant family of God. And so um, even in terms of Peter, um, you know, the Lord shows Peter this great vision 
And he says, rise, kill and eat. And man, Peter, man, look, <laughs> they don't make him like Peter. No, Peter's like, I will not eat what's unclean, right? <laughs> and, 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 and here's what the Lord said. Don't call unclean what I've called clean. That's right. Right. And so I, 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 as a pastor, I use those texts and I always take the opportunity to show that Christianity is not American. Mm. Jesus Christ is Lord of the nations. Say that. America is not the apple of God's eye. There's not <laughs> an American flag draped behind the throne of God. God don't celebrate the 4th of July. Uh, and and let me <laughs> but but uh what did you do in a previous life as far as career-wise? <laughs> I served almost 10 years as a United States Marine. Aha. Uh-huh. Wow. So so the definition of a patriot and and you still don't think there's a flag draped behind the throne of God? No, man. You know, we just being real in this one, right? Look, yes. after traveling the nations <laughs> uh-huh. and uh, kind of going behind the scenes, man, and and quite honestly, um uh as coming back as as uh, a war veteran and having to reacclimate into civilian life and having some very harmful patterns of thought towards uh, my Arab neighbors and brothers and sisters, hmm. um, the Lord had to walk me through a very definitive process of rebuke, correction, repentance, and changing my heart and uh, restoring my soul and and really um, opening my eyes, brother, <laughs> to to that reality. Um, we can be conditioned. And I think this fits. I'm glad you brought that up, Jamar, because we can be subtly conditioned to dehumanize those outside our borders or those who are not like us, right? And I think that's at the root of the misrepresentation of the Christian faith and what we're talking about. You can't hold on to the faith once delivered to the saints and dehumanize your neighbor. You have to twist it. But the problem is, when you misrepresent and twist the faith, you lose sight of it yourself. <laughs> and wow. that is what happened. That's exactly what happened. You, you can't you can't perpetuate heresy and not be a heretic. Mm. And 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 so um, you know, anyway, so man, walking through that experience, like that really, like it, it opened my eyes, like, wait a minute, Lord, you are Lord of the nations. And then you read passages of scripture as we're looking forward in terms of the eschaton and the restoration of all things. And you see God has called the people unto himself from all peoples, all languages, all tribes, all nations. And so, the Bible is just so clear about it, but it it also should give us great caution in terms of the fact that the cultural lenses through which we interpret the Bible, whew, it's real. It it's us. real, brother. Yeah. It's real. I'm gonna start preaching, man. You better get me, man. Look, you already were, and I'm here for it. <laughs> and and what you bring up is so important because I think there's a difference between saying God has a plan for the nations and God has a priority and a preference for the American nation. That's different. Like God does have a plan for every nation because he's Lord of all, right? But that doesn't mean he favors or has a preference for 
the the United States, right? Like you said, he can raise up sons of Abraham from stone. He can raise up nations and bring them down. This is not the kingdom. The United States is not the kingdom of God. And Say so we again, always have brother. to, we got to keep that in mind, especially as we are in such a hyper partisan state of politics. But I say that very carefully because I don't mean that we are as Christians somehow apolitical or non-political. I just mean that as political citizens in this kingdom, we have a higher allegiance to God's kingdom. And that should guide us. Even if you're a Republican or a Democrat, I think you can be those things, but still have priority for the kingdom of God. So that's just an aside. I think one thing that that we need to dig into is the fact that you don't have, at least outspokenly, a lot of people claiming today that black people aren't Christian or can't be Christian because of their race, right? Like that's, that's, Mm -hmm. that's not really the issue that we're confronting when we say, uh, you know, Christianity is a white man's religion and here are the different ways that, that it's sort of succumbed to white supremacy, but I, but I think what we're talking about is second-class citizenship in the kingdom of God. I think you Come even on, see bro. that in the New Testament, right? Oftentimes, what Paul is arguing against in terms of discrimination in the house of God wasn't people flat out saying, oh, these other people aren't Christian. It was them adding to the gospel and saying that in addition to repenting and believing in Jesus Christ, you have to be circumcised, or you have to take on these Jewish customs and practices. You have to make these sacrifices, whatever it might be. So it wasn't saying you're not a Christian. It's saying you're not a Christian like us unless you do these things that we do. And I think that is salient even today. As we go to churches especially predominantly white churches as people of color, and nobody's saying, well, you can't be Christian. They're excited to see you. They're glad to have any sort of diversity in the congregation. But the subtext is you are not a Christian on our level unless you're like us. And you're only a Christian to the extent that you are like the dominant culture. And that's a problem. I think what that is is a diminution of the image of God in all people and a devaluing of diversity. Because a lot of times what happens is Christians mistake uniformity for unity. Uniformity means we're all the same. And that forces you to conform to a particular uh, culture that is not biblically sanctioned, whether that's music style, how you dress, the preaching style, where the church is located, all these different things. But unity means that you can have diversity and all the tension that goes within that, but still hold together as the body of Christ. And so I think the fundamental difference is a lot of churches try to flatten out diversity. I think the churches that are moving toward a biblical vision are the ones that celebrate diversity in in various ways. Absolutely. So you brought up a very, very important point, right? And Basically, it's the idea that the kingdom's expression through people of color in America and beyond, as it is expressed in the black church and in other communities of color, are somehow JV, right? Yes. That, yeah, y'all do it, but 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 we could show y'all how to do it better, though. That's right. Right? That somehow black worship, black preaching... 
uh, black Christian tradition as it has been expressed in America is subpar, that it doesn't somehow meet the standard, right? Won't say it. And it comes across in a couple of ways that I've noticed. Here's one. That, for instance, the tradition of celebration in Black preaching is seen not as a legitimate expression of homiletics and and the exegeting of the scripture, right? It's seen more as a performance, you know? And so uh, I remember being uh, part of a particular local church community and uh, beginning to preach and and getting more pulpit time and um, someone asking me, so, so when you going to hoop though? You know, like, like, do you do that thing? Dance, you know, us. and I'm like, I'm like, I'm, what? what? It, it, exactly. Right. Right. And so it's like, see, it's like, man, you, you just, you've absolutely missed it. Uh, and so there's that aspect. But the other aspect as well, which I know you're passionate about, I know you get this, I know you've seen this, is the shade, <laughs> the, the, the dramatic shade that has been thrown on black scholarship. And black theological man. labor in the church, man. Say that. I mean, the fact that the fact that significant theological works done by black people on the pastoral theological level, like the pastor theologian, and also at the scholarly level, isn't platformed, given attention to, particularly as particular subjects are being taught in our seminaries. And so Bruh. if you're going to a predominantly white seminary and you're expecting to go deep into significant figures within black church history that helped to shape the trajectory uh, by God's grace in terms of the American faith and preaching and ecclesiology and all of those things, you're not going to hear about them. If you do, you will get a just a blurb, right? And I think we saw uh, a very recent example of this with Fuller. Yes, I was just going to bring that up. Hashtag seminary while black. Right, right. <laughs> and so, brother, those two things in particular, I think, have been ways that uh, it has been communicated that expression, the spirit of God's expression of the faith and worship in church life uh, to be seen as inferior because it's not white enough or not white at all. And nobody will say that, but the conspicuous absence of voices of color as well as women in many seminary curricula speaks volumes, right? Like you don't ever have to say that you consider theologies that come out of minorities, minority communities as JV. You don't ever have to say that. All you have to do is not put them in the game. That's all you got to do. That's right. And that's what's happening. And and I'll say this. I went to seminary. Took me five long years as I was doing three or four side hustles at the same time. 106 credit hour degree. Everything from Greek to church history to systematic. I, t- I took them all. And I really appreciated my professors as individuals. But when you put the whole thing together, there were huge gaps. As a matter of fact, I had to do a concentration in missions simply because it was the only discipline within the curriculum that I thought took culture seriously. 
and studied differences and diversity as part of the mission <laughs> of spreading the gospel, right? So you have to pick and choose. And that's what I say to any person of color or women who are thinking about or in seminary, you actually have to develop your own parallel curriculum in most cases because they won't offer the classes, they won't offer the books. And, and like you said, when they do, it's going to be with so, this sort of subtle undertone that this is not as um, orthodox, that this is not as sound as the other mainly dead white men you're reading and studying. And again, this is not intentional, but this is how this idea of white centeredness gets baked into American Christianity. And I'll also say this, it gets really personal too, especially online, right? Like, so through the witness, we do a lot of writing through this podcast, a lot of speaking that's public and we get a lot of public feedback. And I think of the sort of trolling that I hate the most, it's the ones that give a, a jab at your intelligence or your theological acumen because as a person of color, you're presenting a different view than the dominant one. That comes across when people question your theology. They question your exegesis, right? Like, oh, yeah. There's disagreement, and then there's like condescending disagreement. And that's what I sense so often online when people of color and, and, and specifics, right? Like, in terms of a difference in theology, we're reading the same Bible, but a lot of times uh, the, uh, 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 a Euro-American reading will focus on New Testament, will focus on propositional theology. They love the epistles, right? Because they're, they just lay it out, you know, do these things or believe these things and, and major on those. Well, in the black church tradition, we start with the Old Testament and we start with the Exodus, we start with yes. themes of liberation and deliverance, and we 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 go to narratives, right? Because stories, yes. oral stories, were easier to grasp. Uh, those principles were easier to convey in an oral culture, which was forced on us because for a long time we weren't allowed to learn to read or write or attend these seminaries that are supposedly teaching these this sound biblical doctrine, right? So all of that goes into the question of is Christianity the white man's religion. And I just got to be honest with you. I would say in terms of the American version of Christianity, you can make a strong case that it is the white man's religion. At the very least, you need to keep your radar sensitive to the ways that white centeredness has invaded every crack and crevice of what we learn is Christianity from a Western American context. And I know that's going to rub people the wrong way, but I just like, you just see it. It's all over the place. No. So, so let me bring this up then, because this is that's very important, right? So, the kingdom of God is absolutely multi-ethnic. There's no doubt about that. But in terms of the way that multi-ethnic community, multi-ethnic Christian community, is expressed within America, that we're just talking about that in that particular experience. One of the things that I found very helpful, or I would even say that it's a necessity that because of the inherent white-centered bent that is inherent within American Christianity, if you're going to have something that's genuinely multi-ethnic, it, I would say it has to be minority-led. Ooh. It has Breaking to be minority-led. 
Why? Why? You know, I had a mentor one time and, you know, I grew up in charismatic circles and he would, he would preach and he would, he would, he would ask this question. He would ask, you know, I mean, hundreds of people in church meetings multiple times I've sat with him and he would be like, he'd ask out in the open, what's more powerful, the anointing or culture, right? Huh. And, and, and people would just shout out all the time, the anointing, the anointing. And he would stop them. He would say, no, 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 culture. And what he would do was he would take the opportunity to teach that how powerful culture is in terms of how we interpret the world around us. And even in terms of how we help to perpetuate dysfunction that has been handed down to us. Right. Yeah. And so in order to create a very godly and Christ-like pushback against any type of ethnocentric expression of the faith, I think one of the key ways to operate uh, in direct opposition to that is for the majority to learn from. Yes submit to in terms of uh, uh, like elders and teachers and scholarship and preaching and uh, uh, to black people and people of color. Yes. That, that, that has to, and, and if, and if that, see, like, I'm glad you brought that up, dude, because there has to be a sensitivity, right? Like we're looking around like, Hmm, because we've seen it. We've seen it. We've, we've seen these cries and these celebrations for and of unity that were just cultural conformity. Mm. And you're like, yo, man, that's just that's just a plantation that treats you nice. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, that, bro. you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I want I want liberation in the spirit. And according to the plan of God, I, I, I don't I don't want you to tell me with a smile that I got to check my culture at the door. Wow. And so I believe that when you have strong uh, liberated in the gospel minority leadership, I think that's a key marker. When I see that, then I'm like, okay, this is now now we're starting to get somewhere. But until they see that, until I see that, bro, honestly, it's hard for me to take it seriously. But I'll even add a wrinkle to that. Just because you're a person of color doesn't mean you're racially and culturally aware or sensitive. Say that. Right? So obviously, as people of color, you have particular experiences that give you a perspective that a lot of white people in America just won't have because of color and the way this society is structured. But at the same time, we got a lot of we have a lot of assimilated folks out there. And I don't mean that as a knock or an indictment, but just the simple fact that if you've been steeped in white Christianity, by that I mean expressions of Christianity that have come from and through predominantly white institutions and, and organizations, then guess what? You've absorbed some of that. And that can be good. I mean, there's there's stuff you can learn, but at the same time, it's like it's like a cultural accent. And when you go into a foreign land so long, you lose your accent. When you try to go back to your homeland, it's hard for people to understand you. So that's right, bro. For those laboring in and among predominantly white settings, you have to keep your cultural accent, which maybe doesn't mean leaving where you are, but it means having a very intentional, specific focus on maintaining contact with other racial groups and ethnic minorities. Because uh, I just think there are a lot of folks out there who, you know, aesthetically, you could check the box for diversity, but culturally, and in terms of awareness, 
they're just not there. And we got to work on that if if we want yeah. to to have this kind of productive, productive, robust, biblical unity and diversity that we're talking about. So, you know, we as black folks are not off the hook for decolonizing our minds, as our sister Akemini would say. You took the word right out of my mouth. I was just about to bring that up, bro. <laughs> Very good. Well, look, last thing, and then I want to give some resources. Aaron, are we mad at white Christians? Because I get a sense like some people could be walking away from this like, oh, were they just angry black men? No, not not at all. Um, you know, I have the honor and the privilege of of shepherding and and leading with and doing life with dear uh, white sisters and brothers. Um, this is this is not in any way an expression of anger towards them. This is recognizing a tendency that exists within us all to prop up uh, and 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 um, place idolatrous structures in place outside of God's unique purpose and design for us. We're all tempted to place our identity and to seek to find ultimate fulfillment, value, dignity, and worth in things outside of God and His design. But we also have to be very honest about the fact that there were things done again intentionally that centered whiteness in order to perpetuate oppression. That is an uncomfortable truth, but is a truth that we must face and reckon with, repent, and begin to deconstruct as the Spirit of God leads us according to the Word. And so we're not angry, but this is an issue that is that if it's not adequately dealt with uh, within the community of faith, then the genuine faith will continue to be misrepresented and brothers and sisters will continue to be marginalized. This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.